Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercies because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, and seated, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast." For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Need a few microphones up here. They're all over. Um, I guess with your permission, but really this is going to happen. It's just whether you listen or not is up to you. Uh, With your permission, I'm going to kind of teach a little more today. We're going to unpack some important theological truths that are in this text. And uh, I'm not going to do a a ton of work in saying, okay, here's the four things you need to do because of this. I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit reveals to you um, some big truths and that you take your life and the things that you're concerned with and about people you're concerned for and that you are able, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to, to say, what does this mean for me as I live these things out? So in that spirit, I'm going to pray as we begin. Uh, we haven't done uh, that much intercessory prayer this morning, and I'm going to pray for some people in our midst. I'm going to pray for Nathan. The back, uh, Nathan is taking a job this week where he's going to be away three weeks at a time and back for one. And uh, there's all kinds of implications for that in terms of travel back and forth, flying back and forth. But we're particularly praying for many of you know Nathan's little son, Liam. And it's a shared custody situation. And so there's all of the implications with that. George is with us here. We're going to be praying for George. And uh, what a blessing to have. Yeah, amen. (laughs) They're clapping for you, George. You got something, Lucy? Did you hear that? There's another birthday that gets its own category. On Thursday, George will be 98 years old. That's a round of applause. And I'm going to pray for Bob Bell as well. Bob is Ken Bell's father, and Bob had a heart attack this past week, I think on Tuesday, Wednesday, and remains in hospital, is doing okay. But uh, let's pray together. And in this time, also in the quiet, lift up your own prayers to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness among us. We pray for these people that we've named and many that we have not named. 
I think of Heather Beveridge and her health situation. And we ask your mercy and healing and grace. We pray for George, for Lucy, and the whole family. That you would bless them and strengthen them. We thank you for their faith. And as we pray particularly for George, we thank you for his faith, which is a model to each and every one of us of what it means to trust in you and how good you are. And so we ask your blessing. We pray for Nathan as he takes this new job and all of the questions that he would have with him, all of the concerns. We thank you for making a way for this, but we pray about these things that can't be controlled by Nathan and those areas in which he has to trust. We pray a blessing for Liam. We pray for Liam's growth in knowing you and hearing your voice. And we pray that Nathan would know that you go with him and our prayers go with him as well. We pray for Bob Bell. Uh, We ask Heavenly Father again for your mercy. We pray for Ken and other family members who are caring for Bob, that you would give them strength. I think for Ken particularly in the drive back and forth to Coquitlam each day. And ask Heavenly Father for your strength and your healing. And now as we turn to your word, we ask that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray that we would have minds tuned to what you would teach us, teach me and others this morning, and that Holy Spirit, by your presence, we would take what we learn and humble ourselves before you and then say, well, so what does this mean for my life? And that you would fill us with hope. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So the book of Ephesians, this is the study we've taken up in this uh, past few weeks and the next number of weeks. And I, uh, so this this week, I think I have to turn this on. Uh, This week we're talking about being made alive in Christ, so that's here. And we've been singing about it this morning, but this was the little uh, metaphor to give you as a picture of how the book is structured. We talked about these big theological truths being presented in the first three chapters of the book. And the passage that Claudia read for us this morning is that pinnacle passage. I kneel before the Father and pray that you would know the depth of God's love. That, in a way, is the only prayer we pray. What else do you have to pray for? Circumstances, right? Situations, healing, health, travel, work. But this is the prayer. That you would know wherever you're going whatever you're experiencing, that you would know the depth of God's love. Because if you know the depth of God's love and you respond to this love in Christ, then you will know life, whatever your circumstance is. So it's this building to this lofty peak and then chapters 4, 5, and 6. Very practical, the kind of, so in light of these truths, how are we then to live? Last week, we looked at the second part of chapter 1, continuing with this idea that I long for you to see and to know, which is introduced in the first chapter. We so often, and we think of ourselves, um, but sometimes this can be in parental relationships or, you know, people in your life, friends, family. You think, this is what I would like this person to do or accomplish or achieve or study, whatever it might be. You kind of think of actions, activities. But here, again, the presentation is, we long for one another to see. This is a different kind of, this is something particularly Christian in a culture where everything is, you know, based on what you achieve in earthly things. This instead is our first longing is that you would see. So he prays this for the people to whom this letter is being written. 
this letter to the church in Ephesus. And then he says, I thank God for you all the time. It's another pastoral and often particularly Christian position. I thank God for all of you all the time. I thank God for your faith. It's a good thing to thank God for. You know what it's like if you have this Christian faith, if you know what it means, and it's always kind of, you know it and you wonder about it at the same time, like how, what are all the implications? What does it mean that Christ dwells in you? And you share conversation or communion with someone else in whom Christ dwells in this way? I thank you, I thank God for your faith. And then he intercedes for them and prays, I pray that you would see. He mentions, we talked about this last week, that now the same power, if you respond to this love of God in Christ, now the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you. That's too much to take. I've been struck this morning by how broken down we all are. Is that okay? Maybe it's just because I'm really old now. But, I mean, we all are battling things. We're struggling with things. We're holding things. We're longing for something different around us. We carry the pain of people we love. And so often that's harder than even carrying our own pain. So there's this acceptance of our own frailty. We can't even fix the things that matter most to us so often. And then we are told, this is wonderful, the same power that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. Well, then how come I can't fix these things? Well, maybe that power is unto something even better than just a change of circumstance. So, who can we listen to that can help us to see that? We mentioned George turning 98 this week. And uh, I visited George in the hospital this past week. They were talking, there was a bit of a hubbub when I visited him. Not because of me, my appearance in visiting but uh, because the, the hospital was saying, it's time to go home. And when you're almost 98 and you're not sure, the family not sure of like, what's the situation now? How, you know, what does it mean in terms of George and Lucy caring for one another? Now the mics are working. No, that, what does it mean for George and Lucy caring for one another? Are we entering a cave? Warn us, what are you doing to us? Okay, we're good. Um, all these questions, what, go home where? What, what are the implications for this? And so as that kind of Jim was there visiting or caring, Lucy was there, and I kind of move in and there's George lying in the bed looking good, but been through a lot, George has. So we start talking, how are you, he says right away, right? Like he's there to figure out how I am. I'm here to say, how are you, George? Oh, I'm good. And then, you know, probably one of George's lines, not bad for an old guy, something like that. And so we talked, we read the 40th Psalm together. We prayed. And I said, George, I mean, if I'm doing this kind of thing, I'm trying to listen to God as I visit someone. I'm not actually the type of person who talks about God all the time. But I'm listening, Heavenly Father, Be present in this conversation. And in that moment, I say, George, and in that spirit, I say, I know something. God is going to be good to you. George, without missing a beat, snaps right up and says, Oh, he already has been. 
This is a key for us. This is a door for us in this passage. We are consumed so often with what will or might happen. That is the land so often in which you live. I can live there too, and it makes sense. One of my favorite bands, one of the lines in a current song of theirs says, the fear of what's to come has been crippling me. The song continues, because it is a song of faith. So he says, the fear of what's to come has been crippling me, but then there is this faithful, loudly, strongly sung line that just says, oh, oh, your love endures. Oh, I have faith once more. I have hope once more. Ephesians chapter 2 is a George Galpin approach. In other words, it is not so much what is about to happen that will dictate what I feel. It is what I know has already happened. This is a Christian posture. This is something that if we could get this right, we would know how to bless the world in better ways. Not so much what will happen, but what has happened. When you think of the future as a Christian, and this is theological, I told you I'd be teaching, um, one of the things that can benefit is to think, wait a minute, I'm all concerned about my future. But I live in Christ. Christ lives in me. So the future that I need to dictate how I feel is the future of Jesus Christ. That's the future that should help me to consider how I am to feel. And the future of Jesus Christ is that all things will be brought together in Him. I don't fully know what that means, but I know that it's hopeful. So when we think of our own lives, it is this realization of what's to come, but this realization also of what's already happened. So the book is structured, the chap, this text, this section, is structured this way. Verses 1 to 3, the way that things were. Verses 4 to 7, the change that has happened. And verses 8 to 10, the call to live in light of what has happened. You can see... Uh, on the side of the screen there, these words, you were dead. These are not lovely words to start a Scripture passage, other than at least it's in the past tense. It's better than you are dead or you're going to be dead. Very interesting start. Because it's not you're going to die, you'd better watch out. Which is so often the religious approach, right? You better accept this or else you'll die. I've always thought that's an interesting thing. If we did that with anything else in the world, right, people would be like, well, I don't, here's a great phone. You should really take this phone. It's the best phone you'll ever have. Oh, I might do that. And if you don't, you're going to burn forever. People would be like, what is that? I can't fathom this. We, we, we start with this warning so often. You'd better do this or this will happen. But this... And and I know that there's scriptural basis for that. This Ephesians 2 starts with something that was true and is no longer true. You were dead. Death, the nature of this. What it means that you were dead. And it's outlined in these verses. Verse 2. It means that you followed the ways of the world. In other words, the world can't bring life. And so if you follow the ways of the world, that's a way of death. We understand that and know that. In other words, everything is declining. But it's not just the ways of this world. It's the cravings of the sinful nature. 
In other words, your, your default in life was to try to get what you want. To think of yourselves more highly than others. All of these kinds of things. Sin. The cravings of the sinful nature. And then there's this weird religious language. Really kind of spiritual language. When you, like about the prince of the air. Speaking of evil. But basically the translation here means this is the earthly realm. This is the realm apart from God. You follow the ways of this realm. But there is this opponent identified. You follow this way. And that is a place of non-life. Of fallenness. And here's the reminder. You can't get life from a place of non-life. The realm of death will never give you life. And I don't know how much we need to unpack that because if you've been alive for long enough, you just know. No matter what I do in life, even if I get the best, the things I've always wanted, it doesn't last. It's not life. And this is that you were dead in your sins and transgressions. This is death. This is apart from God. And then by nature you were objects of wrath. Now we get, we get tripped up here because we think because of this God was out to get us. That's not what the text is saying. It's saying by your nature in that realm, apart from God, you would know God's love as wrath. You would experience it that way. Because you were in this realm of non-life, God's love would feel to you like an assault, like a threat, like wrath. If you trust in yourself and refuse to trust in God, this is the teaching of this text, then God's love for you will not feel like love. You were by nature objects of wrath. God is the author of life. This is a, I don't think that it necessarily is only Christian. I don't know other religions enough. But certainly in the Christian faith, the starting point is that God is the author of life. We cannot do that. It is not that God acted as if, I want to create people and judge them and wipe them out, which is a poor understanding of Christian faith. Wrath and love are not mutually exclusive. And look what happens right away because you go verse 2, verse 3, and then verse 4 right away. God is what? Merciful. He's not out to get you. But we need to talk about sin that's mentioned here. And there's a little bit of Greek here. So this is where you're really learning. You know, perk up your minds and think, I'm going to learn some Greek this morning. Well, a little bit. You think of sin because of how you've been taught mostly in the world. Popular culture, church, religion, various kinds. You think of sin like wrongdoing, bad. You think of sin as, as Promethean. What that means is that means heroic. Like sin is something you do. I'm going to go do something bad. I'm going to kick this thing and break it. And you'd be like, that's a terrible sin you just did. Right? And so we teach so often that way that that's what sin is, doing bad things. The key of that is the understanding that the center of sin is pride. So some of you have been taught that. And there's some truth in that. But it's not the only thing to understand about sin. We need to know that sin is also sloth which feels very different than pride, right? In other words, it's not some heroic sin. When I say heroic, I don't mean a value statement. You know what I mean? I just mean strong. Like I'm going to go out and 
do something bad. And I'm going to do something bad really well. There's another form that is slothful. That is basically like, I'm not going to consider the things of God and what God has for me and how God loves this world. I'm just going to kind of fall into myself. This is sluggish, indolent, slow, and my, one of my favorite quotes about sin. In relation to God, there is no middle term between love and hate. The one who does not love God resists and avoids the one who is for people. God is for me, but I'm not interested in hearing that. Right? So what do I do? So I turn my back on God, rolling myself into a ball like a hedgehog with prickly spikes. What this quote means is, you were dead. You weren't interested in the things of life. You weren't interested in God. And then what comes next is astounding. The text that was read for us says, God made you alive while you were still in sin and transgression. But God. But God. See the difference? I was like this. I was in myself, not interested in hearing that there's God who loves me and everyone. But God. Totally different energy and focus now. God who is rich in mercy. Now, this is when it said, made you alive in Christ. This is Christian teaching. Where the realm of non-life Sins, transgression, and the trio there. Some of you heard this particularly if you uh, happen in upon the Anglican service or something, where this is often in the liturgy. The world, the flesh, the devil. See those three things? The world, the flesh, the devil. But now in contrast to that realm, you have God's mercy described as great love, rich grace, and kindness. Instead of the world, the flesh, the devil. I read a newspaper article yesterday morning. It's about a young woman in the United States who years ago was part of a very successful band. Quite a subcultural uh, in its appeal, but very popular. And this band was traveling in between shows in the United States. And the venue they were about to appear in, or appear in soon, called to cancel their appearance. And so there was, what's going on? And what came out is that the lead singer of the band, or the leader of the band, I assume lead singer, uh, had sent sexually explicit photos to somebody. And the venue said, this is going to get out, and we don't want anything to do with this. This young woman that the article focused on was part of the band, and that leader of the band was her best friend. And she right away said, I'm done with him. I disavow everything he's ever done. I don't want anything to do with him. He left the band, left music, and according to the article, kind of had to move cities and found a very difficult time. Certainly not defending what he apparently did. Not long after, well, I don't, I don't think the article specifies, but sometime after, the same young woman who had, you know, had this happen and had taken this stance against her friend, which she felt was justified, and we might too. It came out, somebody posted online, wrote a little thing online, that years ago, when she was in high school, 
somebody had sent a naked photo or something of somebody else in the school, and a number of people had received it. And this young woman who was in this band now years later had, had commented with a little emoji, like a face, right? Like a symbol. And the way in which she comment, commented made it obvious that she was making fun of the person who was the victim of this photo being passed around. So this young woman who had taken the stand against someone who had been her friend now faced something from 10, 12 years earlier and it changed her life. She had been in a band herself now, the lead, and everything was gone. And the person who posted this, who found this comment that she'd made 12 years earlier, and it's in the article, expressed nothing but glee. He said, I am glad to destroy someone's life like this. We live in a world right now where Christian grace is so contrasted. The one thing you did years ago will do you in. And if you, and, but you at the same time are expected at times to call other people to account. It's actually called the call-out culture. I found this years ago. To me, it's just saying, don't ever post anything. This is so different. While you were there, either sinning strongly and doing bad things, or turning your back on God and saying, I'm only focused on myself, what did God do? Finish you? Made you alive. And then the language is astounding. You were raised. You were resurrected. You have been made alive in Christ. See how he goes back to the previous verses from the first chapter. The power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is at work in you. Now back to that power. What's it at work for? It's not at work for so that, well, it's not at work so that you can have every good thing you want in life. You're a child of the king, you get the best. The power of the resurrection is at work in you so that you can know the life to which you are called by a rich and loving and merciful God and you can live that life now. Remember, you have been raised. Look at what has been done for us in Christ. You have been saved, says the text. Saved from death. You have been raised up and you have been seated with Christ. This is the thing that has happened. The fear of what's to come need not be crippling because of what has happened. God has been good. God will be good to you. And you can say, He already has. But this life is in Him, in Christ. There is this uh, reminder. So you get a little bit of, of Greek, and now you get a little bit of Latin, okay? This one's important to me as well. These two terms, pro nobis and pro me. You know what they mean? No. Good. Because then I can teach you something and seem really smart. All I just read it, though. Pro nobis, well, pro me, that's an easy one. It means for what? For me. God is for me. But good Christian theology will lead with this pro nobis. That means for us. 
He is for us before He is for me. He is for this world before He is for you as an individual. And I'm not making a theological statement here with the next thing I'm going to say. I'm sharing my faith and my prayers. I pray, if this is good news for me and bad news for almost everybody else, I don't think it's great news. He is for us first. But it's true that I cannot respond on somebody else's behalf. And the life is life in Him, in Christ. It's not of your own doing. This is where the text will lead us. It is not of yourself, not by works. You didn't do this. You didn't accomplish this. You have been made alive. You do not use this life that you know in Christ to separate yourself from other people as if God has loved you and not them. That's not Christian. It's not of your own doing. And this is not that God has done something for you, fixed the microphone, and then walked away. Your car broke down, you called BCAA because you had the service, and they came, maybe it's a dead battery, and they jumped that battery, and then thankfully, I think, the person who jumped the battery doesn't hang around with you for the rest of the day, right? They just fixed what you needed done, and off they go. So often, this is a religious idea that God does something for us, but we functionally live the rest of our lives. That's not how Christian faith speaks. Christian faith says, your life, your ability to see what God has done for you, is in Christ. And no matter how Christian you call yourself, if it's religion, if it's doing this thing as opposed to that thing, if it's being better than this other person, that is not in Christ. Christ stays with you, dwells in you. It's Christ dwelling in you that allows you to see God's blessing. Life is not in achieving some state or accomplishment. It's not in works, as this text says, And it's never in separation. It's never thinking, well, you know, God has done this for me and not somebody else. The the way that this text says it is this. There's no boasting. Boasting, by definition, is something that says, you know, I have something or have done something that you haven't. Boasting is a separation word. Right here in the text, it says, if you understand Christian faith, you understand life in Christ, no boasting ever. It's not understood, Christian faith, by this separation. You were dead, and you've been made alive. For me, for us. And finally, and the last little bit of the call to live in light of this, we'll focus more on in the future. Focus on that in the future. But verses 8 to 10, something has happened. The how of what has happened. This is by grace, not by works. And then this beautiful, beautiful line. I mean, it would be enough for us just to hold on to this. If I could say this to you and you would just pray about this, I'd be good for the day. <laughs> you know what I mean? If I just said, do you know that you are God's workmanship? Such a beautiful word. Workmanship. The craftsman. You are God's workmanship. Created for these good things. It's not what you've done. But the language here picks up something very important in Christian doctrine, and that is creation. So other texts will say similar things where it talks about 
you are now, because you've been made alive, you are, you know the words, right? You are a new creation in Christ. This is now, you've done a little bit of Greek, a little bit of Latin, and now you get a little bit of theology. You've already had some, but we'll end with this concept. What's the doctrine of creation? If I were to say to you, what's the doctrine of creation? Unfortunately, because we think that our job is to battle culture half the time, which it's not, we can think that the doctrine of creation means, here's how God did it, and you say wrong, right? We think that creation has to do with creation evolution or something. It's not what the text focuses on. What's the Christian doctrine of creation? There are very many things you can have conversations about, but what matters most? Well, I think it's this. You don't have to agree, but at least hear me out. What Paul's going to do here is say that same power that created the universe is also the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And it's the same power that's at work in you. So he takes not only resurrection, but creation to parallel to what God is doing in you. This new creation language. When I was growing up, I was taught new creation almost as like a threat sometimes. Remember, Todd, you're a new creation, a little bit. So you should feel more guilty about your sin now. Or so. I, I'm not saying they meant to do it that way, but maybe I just heard it that way. You're a new creation now. And I missed some of the rich teaching that they may have had and I just didn't hear it, which is the creation part. They could have just said to me, you're new. You're not, you're not like you used to be. But the word creation is there. You are new creation. What it means is this. This is the doctrine of creation. What does the doctrine of creation teach us? How God did it, six days, this order. You're going to get lost in the weeds if you do that because the text is really tough to use that way because it's not written scientifically. And one creation count is quite a bit different than the other creation account in Scripture. And you're going to have to iron those differences out and the rest. So what does the doctrine of creation teach us? This. It teaches us that God is not God alone. Get what I'm saying? Because if you ask first, why would God create? See, in theology and doctrine, you'd be teaching like this. You cannot be alone. You cannot exist apart from God. I'm talking religious doctrine here. In other words, none of us can have that self-existence apart from the transcendent. We were made. This earth was made. God is the only being who could exist alone. Got it? And he chose not to. Creation is an act of grace. That's the Christian doctrine of creation. Creation is an act of grace. God is not God alone. Now hear it again. You, in Christ, are a new creation. Not alone. With God. And it's trusting in Christ that allows you to see this. To know this. To know this salvation. And so the call is to live in light of this. Final mention as we turn to communion from a famous uh, 
document of Christian faith. Years ago, it still happens and it's helpful, but years ago, the idea was if we can just lay out Christian doctrine in question and answer form, then people will know what they're supposed to believe and we'll all be good. So, you know, what's the chief end of man? To enjoy God and glorify Him forever, right? The Plymouth Brethren didn't really write any stuff down so much, so we don't have a lot of these documents, but a lot of Christian denominations did. And one of those documents is called the Heidelberg Catechism. Catechism simply means question and answer. That's it. In the Heidelberg Catechism, the first question, what is your, I changed it to my, what is my only comfort in life and death? Now hear this in light of what we've just taught and heard. What is my only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong. Body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You know this life in Him. He is the one given for the life of this world. You were dead, and in Him, You've been made alive. May God, by the presence of the Holy Spirit, show us what we need to know from this. And it's fitting then to turn to communion. Because communion is at least two things. As we receive the bread and the cup, I guess you could say it's a declaration. It is a declaration of your faith. I receive this because I trust in Jesus Christ. If you don't, you don't have to take the communion. It's okay. There's still no second-class citizens, remember? For us, before for me. But if you don't have that faith, you don't have to share to take, to receive. If you take and receive, you declare your faith in Jesus Christ until He comes. I trust in Him for the forgiveness of my sins. I trust in Him to know this life. You take the blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sin, represented by this cup. So it's a declaration. But it's always also a question. We're okay with that? You take it, you receive, and you say, I want to know what this means. That my life is in you. You can do both this morning. Let's pray. So Heavenly Father, we thank You for this, Your Word, and we thank You that it all comes together, Heavenly Father, in Your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You that there is no one in the world that we can say He was not for. We can say that in and of ourselves we resist and oppose so often. But we know, Lord Jesus, that You gave Your life for the life of the world. Teach us what it means to trust in You, to give our lives to You, to know the life that is in You. Help us to pray for those we love who have not seen this. It is troubling to us because we can't make it happen, but we long for them to see and know. So bless this communion, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.